see, I'm bringing, the, first of all, the book, just, just to prove that I've, uh, I've read it. And, um, do you need some water? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, good, okay. Well, welcome. Do you need some? I think I do, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. You can see why she became leader, can't you? Always upstaging academics. There you go. Quite right, too. Quite right, too. Well, welcome, everybody, uh, to what we hope will be an informative and uh, enjoyable uh, evening. Um, but most importantly, I wonder if we can put our hands together to welcome Nancy Pelosi. So I wonder if we could start with a little bit of biography. Uh, I'll take you back to Baltimore. Um, you were born in Baltimore in World War II, uh, of Italian-American roots and background. Your father was a... Rabbi, <laughs> uh, Kinds of ways they, they shape your early life. 
I wonder if you could say a few words about that too. To the audience, yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Cox. Thank you, LSE, for the invitation to be here. Uh, thank you to uh, Director Calhoun uh, for your leadership, and we're very proud uh, that you are where you are. And I'm very excited to be here. Uh, one of the influences to me as a, as a student and the rest uh, was President John F. Kennedy. And when I read and his background that he had studied here, it always piqued my interest. Now that's going back a long way. Uh, many of my colleagues have come here. Um, I, Drew Hamel, who's with me on my staff, Director of Communications, has a master's from here. So I feel very, very comfortable uh, coming to hear what you have to say. But Professor Cox wants me to go first to say uh, how I, uh, what influences got me to be involved in politics to become the first woman Speaker of the House. The, uh, for my family growing up, my, when I was born, my father was a member of Congress from Baltimore. When I was in first grade, he became the mayor of Baltimore. And when I went away to college, he was still the mayor of Baltimore. Uh, so uh, <laughs> and we were uh, in our family christened uh, in a, a really deeply religious Catholic, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, uh, proud of our Italian-American heritage fiercely patriotic Americans, and staunchly democratic. <laughs> so that was the, uh, the background. The, uh, but in those days, Democrat, Republican, it wasn't about politics of personal destruction. It was debate about ideas. And these ideas largely centered around the economy. This predates any discussion uh, uh, in the public domain of environment, women's rights, uh, LGBT, any of those issues which would later emerge as defining issues between the parties, but in those days it was about the economy. Uh, the uh, message that I had from my family that public service was a noble calling, that we all had a responsibility to people in our community. I saw that in my parents, uh, on my father as a, an elected official, my mother as a really, if she lived in another time, God, I don't know what heights she would have reached, uh, but uh, with a very strong commitment uh, to the community. So it was that, uh, again, that value of public service, of not necessarily running for office or being an elected person or any of that, but at least uh, uh, playing a role uh, to, to weigh in, recognizing that important decisions are made all the time in the public arena uh, that, that affect the future of families and children, and we all have a responsibility to play our role, whatever that would be. I, I never intended to go into politics, but you'll probably ask me about that now. I will. Well, one, one thing that came out in your book, and we talked briefly before we came down, <clears throat> was the question of Catholic faith and the yeah. importance of Catholic faith. Could you just elaborate a bit more on that? And how, that seems quite central to defining both you as a person and also your, your political commitment as well, and your social commitment. Well, uh, we are all familiar with, well, many of us who uh, are Catholic or Christian are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, the least of my brethren, uh, the words of Christ about uh, his recognition of what we do for people as being done really for him. And so that was always a driving force. It also, taking it from the scripture uh, to a, another place, is that uh, I believe that in politics, a message of hope is a really important message to convey 
uh, to people. Uh, and um, that's what many of us have built our uh, agendas around, what is hopeful to people, to, uh, to I'll talk more about it in a moment. But from the standpoint of faith, when people are almost in despair because of their economic situation or challenges they face, and they say, where is hope? I always say the same thing. Hope is where it's always been, sitting right there between faith and charity. People have faith, gives them hope that someone will have the charity, the kindness, the, the love, uh, to have policies that affect all people, respecting the dignity of, and worth of every person from a religious standpoint, recognizing the spark of divinity that exists in every single person and how worthy they are uh, of respect. And also in our religion that we are, uh, have responsibility, we have a free will, but we have responsibilities uh, to take responsibility. So, uh, so uh, well, it gives me hope every day, and what is our hope that working together we can give other people hope who need uh, to be lifted up. You, you went to college, you went to Trinity College, the main women's Catholic college, I think, in the United States, where you... We thought so. You thought so. <laughs> Two of my college roommates read like, my... We, we know the LSE is better than Oxford and Cambridge. You know, so we, we, we get that, we get that back point. And there you met your, your husband, and I, I read again about his proposal, come and have a beer. And I think uh, you, you said get lost, and uh, come and do my shirts, and uh, I think you also said get lost, but let's not go into detail about you. Um, <laughs> You lived in California, you didn't. Um, and then you, you, you had a family. Yes. Um, and I, I thought, again, what comes out in the book was really interesting, is that you, you, you used the term at one stage, when, when a woman is asked, what are you? She says, just a housewife. And you say, just. And I think you made you, this kind of relationship between the personal, the family, and the political. I, I kind of took very strongly from your book that, Building a, a strong family, having the family, was not only great. Anybody can run Congress after having five children. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing. But, but also the the kind of ways in which one should not see a separation between family and and public sphere. Well, you would probably never hear it today. Uh, but years ago, when I was a uh, young mom and the rest, and if you met somebody, you'd say. Uh, You'd hear somebody say, what do you do? And I don't even know if people say that anymore. But And, and, and somebody would say, I'm just a housewife. Yeah. You'd think, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. That's probably the most difficult, challenging uh, job to be a mom and be at home and, and uh, raise a family and still values uh, and still confidence in children. You're building the future of a country in addition to, more importantly, personally, uh, uh, loving your family. Uh, and I say to women, because this is really important to me, to have many more women involved in politics and in every aspect of our lives, but my responsibility is more into the political and government arenas. I say to women, when you take inventory of who you are to present yourself, put yourself on the line, do not let the other side, as they will do when I say other side, of just those who are uncomfortable with that idea of many more women, this is growing less and less, but nonetheless, trivialize what you did. Well, she was at home for all these years, and for the past few years, she's, no. 
That is a major accomplishment. I put it up against any challenge in terms of diplomacy, interpersonal skills, discipline, management of time, uh, caregiver, uh, healthcare provider, in so many different ways. So just the idea that you would be that organized, uh, that dedicated, with a long-term commitment to America's future, that's a big badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And you build upon that. Now, for me, one of my motivations to leave the idea of I should help others uh, fulfill their public service uh, and take responsibility myself was that I really, uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I didn't seek it, but when it presented itself, I really had to think about what motivated me and, and to, to, to say yes. And that is, I, Paul and I had five children. And we saw all the opportunity, all the love, all the confidence building, all the rest that they had, all the esteem that's so important for kids. And we wanted that for every child. And to see the disparity in our own country, much less in the whole world, of, that, uh, of, of kids having some opportunity or not just by accident of birth. I, I just Who decided this? Who decided this? When I see a little child in Darfur with no sparkle in their eyes, uh, in his or her eyes, or whatever. So that was my. So I saw my role in politics as an extension of my role as a mom, as far as making the world a better place for all children, including my own, so that they would live in a society that was more fair and had more opportunity for all children. Uh, there are many other issues that go into it. But when people ask me, I say the one in five. The one in five children in America who lives in poverty. The one in four now will go to sleep hungry at night in America. That's just an immorality in my view. And so that's what, um, that's what keeps me up at night, but that's what drives my engine in the morning to, uh, to end, that, uh, end that disparity. And uh, one when I talk about involving women and, and the confidence they should take from their own experience. Because whatever contribution they make, it is a unique one. It is, it's a very special contribution and every woman and every man should feel very confident that nobody can do it quite the way you do. So, so one of our successes, making a decision to do this, uh, one of our successes is now as I lead the House Democratic Caucus, which is over 50% women, minorities, and LGBT. That is a remarkable thing in the history of the world, that a party and a parliamentary, well, our congressional government is a majority of women and minorities. It's so dazzlingly beautiful. The beauty is in the mix. It doesn't mean we're smarter or better. It just means the decisions are based on much more uh, legitimacy because it has much more diversity uh, at the table. Now you went into formal politics in the 1980s, I mean that, the, the transition, I mean, yeah. in, in one of the chapters in your book says from kitchen to congress, I think I got that right. Yeah. Now in the 1980s there was a certain woman in this country uh, <laughs> who uh, was buried this week. Uh, did, did Mrs. Thatcher have any influence on you at all, if, if I might? Is that good point, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but as well, I said, uh, let me just say yes. first uh, uh, that, of course, uh, I extend my condolences to the Thatcher family, Baroness 
Thatcher was a great lady. Imagine her personal story, Grocer's daughter becoming the Prime Minister of England and for a long time, an articulate spokesperson uh, for her point of view, an effective leader for her point of view. And, uh, this is very good. This is very good. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and, uh, in terms of, and, and really, whether, whether it was her intentional message or not, really lifting women up because she proved that she could do the job mm-hmm. as, uh, very well. So and she's a, a force in history. I admire and respect that. When you ask me if, um, if she had any influence on my yes. involvement, well, I'll give you the same answer I gave when they asked me if Ronald Reagan did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he affected many, bringing many people into politics. Including me. (laughs) (laughs) One, some on one side, some on the other. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, I think we'll end that one. But many people in America, everybody responds. There's no. I mean, you know, one thing that one notices when you're in the states. I mean, at least in certain part of the political spectrum in the states, there's huge admiration. For, for, for Thatcher, this, this, is, this, this is for sure. That's for sure. This is for sure. Certainly in the Republican Party, not necessarily in the California Democratic Party. <laughs> I think I understand the, in the difference. When no comment. You, no comment, okay. It's fine. Not, not into no, 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 really, <laughs> no. All praises to her. Sure. No, no, I mean, is a, a great a, woman. A remarkable story. Praise a great woman. One, one difference, though, I want to say, because yeah. I was reading a lot about her on the way over uh, <laughs> this morning. And, and one statement that she made that I think is really a telling one, she said, I'm not a politician of consensus, I'm a politician of conviction. Mm-hmm. I really think you can be both. Mm-hmm. I think you can be both. And I, I was interesting that, mm-hmm. that that distinction mm-hmm. was made because in our diversity of what we do, if you're not building consensus around your conviction, that mm. it's really hard to get something done. But we're not a parlamentary system, and, and yours is, and perhaps that's why we would have a difference. Well, we certainly love Meryl Streep as well, by the way. I sometimes think I prefer Meryl Streep to Mrs. Thatcher, but anyway. Um, you moved into politics, I say, firstly through, you know, through, through on, you, did, you, you came up from the bottom, from from the bottom the, up. The, Democratic you didn't party. get flown in at the top. You no. kind of came up. You did all the stuff. You handed out the leaflets. You did all the things, pushing the buggy around. Read it all, uh, and then you began to move up in the Democratic Party. You then you, you got elected in, in 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 San Francisco, and then I noticed you, when you made your first statement in Congress. I think ninety eight, eighty seven, right? And you were always meant to say nothing, aren't you? Basically, right. so I'm here. Thank you very much. And sit down. But you said something about AIDS. Well, when, Why uh, did you do that? Well, let, to go let me transition sure. from the kitchen to the Congress. Okay. So this opportunity presents itself to run for Congress. I never intended, right, Paul? I never ever you you that, Paul. Never <laughs> <laughs> to run for public office. It was just, I was shy and all that. So. Um, I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, the opportunity presents itself. So we have five children, four of them in college, because they're very close in age, and one at home going to be a senior in high school. So I go to Alexandra, because you know Alexandra Closer, she's a filmmaker. She, um, I say, Alexandra, mommy has this opportunity to run for Congress. I don't know if I'll win or not, but it would be better for one more year from now, because you would be in college, but nonetheless, this is when the opportunity is here. 
any answer is fine with me. Some of the depth of my soul with all the sincerity and, and truthfulness, I really didn't care what the answer was. If she said, and I said, I love my life, if you want me to stay this transition year for you, that makes me very happy. However, I do, you know, I'll be gone three days a week if I were to win this and this and this. And she's listening to all of this, and, and she looks up and says, Mother, well, I should have known right there when she was saying mother, not mom. Mother, get a life. <laughs> what teenage girl would not want her mother gone three days a week? <laughs> so, so, well, I, I, I had a life, but I got another life. Congratulations. <laughs> So anyway, we go to Congress, and in 1987, San Francisco, which I am proud to represent, was taking the biggest bite of the wormiest apple called HIV-AIDS. You can imagine. We were going to two funerals a day. We're holding loved ones in our arms who were robust and now skeletal. It was, it, well... Mm. So when I went to get uh, sworn in, that my, I was advised... When the speaker swears you, and this is a special election, so I was the only one getting sworn in that day because the congresswoman had passed away. He said, when the speaker swears you in, don't utter a word. Just say yes. Do you solemnly swear, blah, 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 blah. Just say yes. So I said, okay, I won't say a word. I won't say a word. I won't say a word. I want to do this right. It's my first. And then my father, who had been a member of Congress, who had broad privileges, my family, Baltimore, San Francisco, all the rest, all there. Now I'm not going to say a word. So uh, the speaker swears me in, and then he says, well, the distinguished gentle lady, that's how you're talking, mm -hmm. from California wished to address the house. Mm. Nobody ever turns down the microphone, right? <laughs> Shy as you may be. <laughs> so I went to the phone, and I microphone, thanked my family, constituents, etc. And then I said, I, I'm here. I told my constituents that when I came here, I would I'll tell you that I came here to fight against AIDS and HIV. Bye-bye. Not one minute. Almost longer to tell you than to do it. Well, I look over at all these people who told me don't say a word, thinking... Wasn't that brief? And they were like, oh, my God. Oh, no. Why would you ever want to be known? The first words out of your mouth in the Congress of the United States about HIV AIDS. Why did you say that was what you came here to do? I said, because that's what I came here to do. <laughs> and that really was very interesting to me because it speaks to not only the challenge we had scientifically, medically, and everything, personally, but in a about discrimination against people with HIV/AIDS, so that was my first words on the floor of the House. And I, the, the more they complained about me saying it, the more sure I was that I had said uh, the right thing. Now that's very self-serving to say, but I never knew. And I just was at an AIDS event yesterday morning in the Capitol. I never knew then almost 26 years ago, that 26 years out, we still would not have a cure. We have prevention, we have mm. maintenance of life, we have many good things, mm. but it's, it's been a long time, and hopefully our new scientific breakthroughs will uh, make aid something that you put in a museum and say mm. this is something that came through, uh, but we're over it now. You mentioned in the book, too, the... the, the creation of the quilt, the famous quilt. Oh, yeah. I know this, uh, this is my own personal, my wife, I was then teaching at the College of William and Mary, we went up to the Mall, or the Mall, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. sorry about the pronunciation, you know, 
And we thought it was an extraordinarily moving statement. I mean, if you could explain to me what the quilt was, because it had quite a profound effect on both of us at the same time. Well, the quilt, uh, when I uh, was first elected, uh, uh, some constituents came to me and they said, we want to have a press conference at your home to announce an idea that we have, which is to make a quilt of all the people, who, everybody will make a quilt in memory of someone who died of AIDS. And, and uh, now I have five children. I went to Catholic school, a convent school. I could knit, I could crochet, I could hem, I could make a dress, I could tape, I could do anything. And I said, and I don't sew. You know, in other words, if I don't, if I'm with five kids and all that, that I know how to do these things, I was like, who's going to sew? Nobody sews anymore. And they said, no, people will sew. So I want to write out, say that I did not see what the prospect would be. Uh, but we had the press conference. They proved to be right. Everybody was sewing, including me. I made a quilt and um, a patch. And this enormous, uh, it's like an a ever-growing organism. It continues to grow. We keep having ceremonies about it. It's, it's just overtaking any uh, venue that you want to store it in, much less show it in. So we took it. To the, now I'm a new member. We go to the they, they come to me and they say we want to show it on the mall, but we have a little trouble with the park service. <laughs> so I said, well, we're not taking no for an answer. And they go, the park service said, why don't you just take a few patches, find a street corner, and show it, and people can go there and see it. I said, you're not hearing what we're saying. <laughs> we have a quilt that's going to cover the mall. This is huge. You know where millions of people were when President Obama took the oath of office the first time and second time. Well, this is going to cover, cover all of that. It was so spectacular. You need a roadmap to find your, your patch in the quilt. No, we can't do it because you're going to kill the grass with that much weight on the grass. And people are dying, and you're telling me about killing the grass. What is your problem? Is that how, how do we keep the grass alive? So, well... Now, mind you, I'm totally new, but I used every name. That I, I know I could get this person to get that person. I said, well, it, it said, every 20 minutes, you have to lift it up. <laughs> I said, maybe 20, but done. We have volunteers galore. Who do you think made those patches? Volunteers galore. So every 20 minutes, we're going to lift this thing weighs tons, tons. But it was really an organizing tool and actually a ritual that people would stand around and a given signal, which maybe wasn't exactly every 20 minutes, <laughs> maybe not even every hour, but nonetheless, <laughs> on a regular intervals, picked it up. Probably the grass did die too, actually. <laughs> no, 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 grass, grass dried. <laughs> and, uh, and what's it there for anyway? So exactly. picked it up. <laughs> and... The news helicopters, now mind you, we're talking about, talking in my living room just shortly before about who's going to make these clothes. It's international news. The Cleve Jones, who was the originator, he became the newsmaker of the week. And you saw how magnificent it was. Yeah, it was. But it was so consoling, and it was also breaking down of walls. There were quilts, of course, of people who were uh, uh, gay men who took the first hit on this, but many other people. And it, it was a unifying, bonding, beautiful, therapeutic 
way and the grass is no, was, uh, still growing on the mall. Yeah, but it was an extraordinary moment for us as well. In the, you know, the subtitle of your book, of course, A Message to America's Daughters, and you describe arriving in, in Congress in the House in 87, 88, it sounded like an old boys club uh, with kind of uh, whiskey drinking, bourbon drinking, smoking, a lot of men. How many, how many women were in Congress in 1987? Well, there are 435 members of, of the House, yeah. and there were not two dozen uh, women. Yeah. So it'd be like this whole room, maybe just like, like the little group over yeah. there yeah. Of, of women. Now, it wasn't very many. I don't know about the bourbon, but they did smoke. <laughs> and when I became speaker, I said, no smoking in the smoke-full rooms. That's yeah. over. They really love that. We'd stop smoking in the Has the atmosphere changed that house considerably over the years? Yeah. Well, you see, we're a majority, in our caucus anyway, yeah. majority women and minorities and LGBT. Um, yeah, well, it was a funny thing because I always thought that, now look, going back 25 years, that it would be so far easier that we would ever have a woman president because the American people are so far ahead of the politicians in accepting <laughs> women in leadership roles. Whereas in the Congress, it was such a male-dominated, institutionalized pecking order of, you know, going back to over 200 years. So it never was a thought that we would have a woman speaker, almost impossible. But a woman president, that would be much easier. And uh, that's why it was kind of surprising to some uh, that we did get a woman speaker before a woman president. But I don't think it's going to be too long uh, before we have a... Uh, you would like to name president. names? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was speaking to the, uh, the Cleveland uh, club... Uh, 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 City Club on Monday of this week, and they said, how long do you think it will be before oh, we have a woman president? I said, just as long as it takes Hillary Clinton to make up her mind that she's going to <laughs> Moving on. Uh, uh -huh. You became... We're talking economics You became leader, then you became speaker. You... Experienced a number of presidents and three two term presidents you've experienced. Uh, Bill Clinton, who's been here, of course. Yeah. Uh, G.W. Bush, a president whom you found personally charming but politically problematic. I put that in the English form. Um, and then President Obama. Maybe I'll just ask a very general, almost impossible to answer question. Uh, I, I, know, I, I, know, I know which one of those you kind of politically have more problems with than the other two. But as, as leaders, as kinds of leaders, this is a very difficult way. As kind of leaders, what strengths, what strengths do you think they brought to their jobs? Different kinds of strengths. We're talking about all presidents. Oh, I started yeah. with Reagan, yeah. uh, then uh, yeah. President. But you uh, talk about leadership a lot, and I think this is an important point. Well, uh, obviously in our country, who is the, pre the President of the United States is a... Mm a very, very important position. Whether it's justified or not, we think that person is the leader of the free world, uh, to use an old expression, uh, that is a responsibility that is uh, so, uh, so fraught with how we respect people's different views, how we try to bring people together, and that means domestically as well as globally. Uh, I, I wasn't there that long with President Reagan, and I wasn't in a position so much that I interacted with him. He was a Californian, and uh, 
and a lovely gentleman and the first lady, Nancy Reagan, just a beautiful, lovely person. I had more uh, interaction with President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and I respected him a great deal. We had our, I was really a very junior member of Congress, but we had our disagreements on human rights in China at the time of Tiananmen Square. It was a big uh, fight that we had. But in the course of that, we got to know each other. And one of the really privileges of my life is that last year, on my actual 25th anniversary, I was honored to give the President's Day presentation in February of that's our President's Day, at the George Bush Library and School of Government at, at, at uh, a Texas A&M University. Uh, and for him to invite me there was really an honor, and I sang his praises. He was very courageous. You know, in his campaign, we just go one president at a time. In his campaign, he said, read my lips, no new taxes. <laughs> and then he, in his book, he says, who would I have been as a leader if I saw, once I became president, that we needed to do something? And I said, I can't do it because I had a slogan during my campaign. <laughs> and so when we went to, uh, when they all went, the leadership then, to uh, Andrews Air Force Base to have the budget agreement, of course, taxes were raised. The president was like at 70% in the polls because he just come victoriously out of uh, the first uh, Gulf War. The tax thing hurt him on his own side of the aisle, and as you know, he was not re-elected president, but he's a lovely, lovely gentleman, and Mrs. Bush, uh, I admire them so much. So it, again, we had our fight over China. He ended up doing by executive order what we wanted to do by law, but nonetheless, um, he, he was, in my view, uh, well, we had a different approach on China, but I had that same disagreement with President Clinton on China. So, and I, I didn't hesitate to criticize him, even though uh, he was the president of my own party on the subject. President Clinton, it was masterful. You know, when you think of the Democrats, you think Jimmy, Car presidents of the modern era, uh, Jimmy Carter. Whoever heard of Jimmy Carter four years before, right? Just people on George, Bill Clinton. Governor of Arkansas, Barack Obama, at the convention four years before he was the nominee to be senator. He wasn't even the United States Senate. So you never know who among them uh, in, in the country where the leadership will spring from. And here came Bill Clinton, just absolutely <coughs> masterful and uh, uh, really a, a, a type of personality who liked to have an exchange of ideas and ongoing, courageous. Uh, and and um, um, made some mistakes, but nonetheless, it's <laughs> so popular in our country. And then Pre President Bush, uh, we got a lot done. When I was uh, under President George W. Bush, I had um, the opportunity to serve as minority leader and then as speaker. We, we won the election in between there. And um, so I, I served with him in two capacities. He was always a gentleman and very respectful in that. Uh, we worked together. We did the biggest uh, energy bill in the history of our country. We did the TARP, the some would call bank bailout. Uh, we don't see it that way, but for shorthand. Uh, the, uh, we did things about mental health parity. We did things about um, tax policy that benefited very poor people and the rest. Uh, one major, 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 major disagreement we had was on the war in Iraq. 
and the premise under which it went in. And that will always be a problem. It went in on a predicated, on a, a representation that was not true. There was no evidence, no intelligence to support the threat of, a, of, 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 of what was said about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Now, today, we just observed the 10-year anniversary of the war in Iraq. We have over a million more veterans than we would have had. When we go to war, we've got to think of the war and what happens after the war. A million veterans, many with uh, mental health challenges, physical disability. It really, really was a tragedy that first decade because we went into Afghanistan. Okay, everybody agreed. 9-11, going to Afghanistan. Oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to go over here into Iraq on a false premise. So that was sort of a, 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 a little bit of a barrier. But as you said, the, the President George W. Bush is a very amiable person. I might add, he would not have had as much to go into Iraq had it not been for the support of the UK. That's really a very sad thing. Well, I thought so too. But since we're being family here and just sharing our thoughts. President Obama, he is a magnificent leader. And it's the problem with him, that the, the opposition sees in him is he's a very bipartisan leader. He's, a, he's not a partisan person. I don't even know if he likes politics, to tell you the truth. <laughs> he's, a, 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 he's a public service, policy, making the future better, taking responsibility for the future, respecting other countries, their cultures, uh, their priorities, their challenges, and that's really what the other side fears most, a president that could be perceived as not, not being very partisan. If you put bipartisanship on the ballot, it would score higher than anything. And that's the way it is. So they don't want him to have any bipartisan success. And that's really a try. I've never seen anything like we, as I mentioned, cooperated very much with President Bush when we had the majority and, he, and we had a Republican president. But this obstruction is something that hopefully will just be an anomaly at some point and will go away. Which kind of brings me on to my two last questions before we open up to the audience for Q&A, Nancy. I mean, you mentioned the president is bipartisan, but every indication seems to me, and I think many in the audience maybe share the same view, that the United States is extraordinarily divided. Uh, it's reflected in, 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 in the ability, inability to kind of forge consensus in Congress, as I see it, over issues such as uh, health welfare reform, huge problems over the, over the fiscal cliff, getting the deficit reduction sorted out, huge problems. We've seen the rise of the Tea Party, which has clearly had some influence on the Republican Party. I mean, from afar, at least, and I don't know what it feels like inside the beast, but outside the beast, it looks like gridlock and an ideological divide which is so deep that getting things done is going to prove to be very, very difficult in very tough times. What do you think? In our country, we've always had a, a debate between uh, one party and another about the role of government. Nobody wants a government, any more government than we need. But we have to have public-private partnerships, referees, cops on the beat, referees in the... Uh, marketplace so we can avoid what happened in 2008. So this is not a new debate in our country. 
the technology and the communication in real time about things that are factual or not just feeds the flame. But remember what I told you. The minute this president was elected, things changed because the Republicans, if I may use partisan word here, <laughs> they just decided and they proclaimed most important thing we can do is to make sure he doesn't succeed. And that is there. Now, how do they do that? Because they are, many of them are anti-government ideologues. And if you're an anti-government ideologue, you don't want anything to happen anyway. So nothing. Does nothing work for you? How about the timing? Never? Does that work for you? Because it's nothing never, and that's their agenda. And they think that the sequestration, which is horrible, mindless, and reckless, is a home run. Shut down government, make my day. Because they don't believe in government. So every, every day, if you look at their budget and then the manifestations of their budget, most every day we're voting against initiatives of the law, you know, to, to not implement the law on clean air, clean water, food safety, public safety, public education, public housing, public transportation, public health, Medicare, Medicaid, which they say should wither on the, Medicare should wither on the vine, Social Security has no place in a free society. They want to voucherize Medicare and privatize Social Security. So that, that, so when you say, well, how can you stand in the way of jobs for the American people when the president has put for these initiatives, it's not about that, it's their philosophy that there is no government role. And at the same time, if we can not compromise to enable this president to have bipartisan consensus, all the better, but all the worse for the American people. Now, I'm going to take a moment because I know we're going to questions, but I want to put this in an historical context because I'm here at LSE. And uh, I've been uh, reading up on my Arnold Toynbee. Oh. And uh, as a, one whose uh, education is about uh, politics, history, and political science, if you go back to his story of history or history of studies of civilization that he's made, he, he said basically that when civilizations, you could substitute words society, economy, country, were new. The, there was a, the leadership, political, etc., and the country was the creative, what he called minority. It didn't mean minority, more people or less. It meant the few who were in those leadership roles. There were a creative minority, and they wanted what they were forming to enable civilization to flourish, the people to succeed. And that's what their decisions were about, using power for the people to succeed. Civilizations got in trouble when that governing few became what was called the dominant minority, which would ex, uh, exploit the power for power and for money, but not for the people. And that path has caused schisms uh, in countries, uh, societies, economies, that are, are what we see are, um, the spirit of in the debate in our country. There is a, an attitude that it's all trickle down. If it doesn't trickle down, that's too bad. If it does, that's the free market. If it doesn't trickle down, I'm really sorry. It says uh, uh, we have budget deficits, so we must cut our investments. Why do you think we have budget deficits? Because we cut our investments. 
You're seeing the cause and effect in the wrong order. And that is the, the philosophical context. Now, America is a great country. We will prevail. Our values will carry it. When I say prevail, prevail to our own, I'm not saying against another country, prevail uh, uh, for the good of the people. But this is not, um, these schisms, this uh, uh, tearing apart of the soul of a country, uh, whether it's about social issues or whatever, a lot of it comes back to, do you use power for the people, the creative flowering of civilization, the creative few, or the dominant few to exploit T- for the power and Sorry. for money, and that's the fight that's going on. You also made one other point too, and that's fair if I remember, because I, I actually was, had the extraordinary boring experience of reading whole eight volumes. Uh, so I, I I'm remember, waiting until it's made into a movie. It would be longer than Lincoln, let me just say that, as, as a movie. But he also made another point, was that civilizations also internally can decay and decline without an external challenge. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of an interesting question, you know. So there's another dimension to that. Well, what he Does America need a threat, therefore, to be a civilization? No, no you no, don't think so. No, what he also said, civilizations thrive that decide to, to address the challenges that they face. Yeah, sure. And that is what we will do. We will address the challenges. And this is respectful. They have a right to not believe in government. But the fact is the American people have to decide if that's the path they want to go on. And our first president, President George Washington, cautioned in his departing from public office, saying he cautioned against parties that were at war with their own government. And President Lincoln, with all the challenges he faced, he said public sentiment is everything. And that is where we have to take the debate. And that's why in our budget fights we're talking about transparent. Let's go to the table, let everybody see what these choices are. Let's see where we can find common ground. Where we can't, we must find our ground. But, and, and I'll close with this. I've said that twice now. Um, <laughs> I asked you a second question. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's been a long time since we've all recognized that the middle class is the, is the strength of a democracy. Um, the, uh, Justice Brandeis, long before he was on the court, but a revered figure in America, said you can have wealth in the hands of very, very few, or you can have a democracy, you cannot have both. Now, we begrudge no one their success, but the fact that the disparity of income that is happening in our country now is almost immoral, mm. and we can talk more about that if you ask. But, the, but Aristotle said, I don't know, did you have that question? Aristotle said that, that the communities are governed best where the middle class is strong and, and, uh, and large. And, and, and maybe somebody will hand me this card because I didn't, haven't memorized it completely. Thank you. He said, thus it is manifest that the best political community is formed by citizens of the middle class and that those states that are likely to be well administered, those states that are likely to be well administered, are those where the middle class is large and strong. Aristotle. We've had that thousands of years, and right now we have policies which are uh, weakening to the middle class and those who aspire to the middle class to make it larger and to make it stronger. So uh, uh, we feel very. Uh, responsible for mm. where our place is in history 
in, in addition to where we are on certain issues in the debate. Great. I think we've had enough com I've had enough conversation. I think it's about time for they want to hear you, not me. Uh, so I, I see about 150 hands going up and, and my glasses. I should have gone to Specsavers. I, I, can't, I can't see all of you. So there's a, there's a, I'll, I'll take a couple together. There's a lady here and there's a gentleman over here who looks very enthusiastic. Uh, there's a lady. For, if you could, yeah, please. One or two. Please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jackson from Chicago. Well, thank you for your question. If you all heard, it was about what the prospects are for women as we go forward and, and uh, what some of the challenges are we face now. I want to tell you something totally flat out, and it is a promise, and it, is, it will be true if we can make it happen. <laughs> good. Right. That's good. That's good. So. Good. A lot of I promise you that if we reduce the role of money in politics and increase the level of civility in the political debate, we will have many more women elected to public office in high places in government and decision makers. Uh, I know that is absolutely true, and it holds for minorities and for young people too. We just have to open the system up. The system we have now, the environment we have now, is two, over 200 years old. And except with an overlay of huge, unidentified, special interest money coming in. And that money is used to just slam people, you know, just politics of personal destruction. Ask me, I'm a victim of, I mean, I'm not a victim of it, but they'd like me to be a victim of it. But the thing is this women, you know, we want people in public office who have options. This is not about, well, you're not doing anything, how would you like to run for Congress? This is, I know you have plenty of options. We'd like you to consider this. You have public sector, a nonprofit, academic options, whatever it is, military. We'd like you to consider this. Now, if you have plenty of options, you're thinking, I can put myself on the line, be subjected to millions of dollars of unidentified money, mischaracterizing who I am, having my children come home from school crying each day for what somebody said about their mother that they saw on TV, or I can have a normal life. Now, so uh, it, this is not for the faint of heart. This is really tough for men and women to put themselves on the line. But if you have a civil debate, women will prevail. If you take out that slug of special interest unidentified money, just money in general. I've issued a dare on this. Disclose who's this money coming from, amend the Constitution to overturn Citizens United, 
are reform the whole system to take down the role of money in politics and empower, stop these people who suffocate the airways uh, with their endless undisclosed money and then use the power they gain to suppress the vote. This is what's happening. That's just, that's just not democratic. And it's not right, and it's not conducive to the opening up of the system to young people, to minorities, and especially to women. So I think we just have to make our own environment. Kick open the door. I've been trying for years to increase the number of women. It's probably increased on my side of the aisle um, ten times, well, eight times or something since I was there. But, but I'm realizing that incremental, incrementally it's not good enough. We have to change the whole dynamic. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Yeah, they resort to... See, one of my issues, one of the crusades I'm on is uh, 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 child care, quality affordable child care format to unleash the full power of women, their intellect, their, their talent, their opportunities, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the academic world, whether it's in corporate America, whether it's at home, or whether it's in the House, or in the Senate, or in the White House, wherever it happens to be. And so you have to make some changes that make it easier and better for women's voices to be heard and women's voices to be, I don't want to use the word feared, but um, acknowledged, respected. Okay, respected. And I'm, I'm very excited about it because generationally, young boys see their moms in the workplace, young boys see their sisters with opportunity. When I became a speaker, the letters I was well, even with a leader that relish I received from dads all over the country, fathers of daughters, saying, yeah. now another avenue is open to my yeah. daughter. Well, I'm going to read it. There's, there's a man over here. With, with there's your, a man over here, he says. Uh, <laughs> the man, right. With your belief in consensus, what did President Obama and the Democratic leadership not accept the 2010 proposals of the bipartisan Earl Simpson Fiscal Commission and what do you think of their latest proposals? That's a few time to I don't know what their latest proposals are, but uh, I will say this. Uh, we agreed that there would be a bipartisan commission, and I said as Speaker at the time, when they have a proposal, we will take it up in the House. I could only speak for the House. The fact is, they didn't have a proposal. It didn't pass. Uh, we, we wanted it to be a, a commission that was... Uh, legislated by Congress, that is to say, had the force of law. The Republicans who always wanted this then said, oh, never mind. So the president, by executive order, established the, the, that commission. They never, the Republicans, they had bipartisan disagreement on the proposal. There are many good features in, the, uh, in that proposal. One that I did not agree with was their proposal on Social Security, but I said, you know, we can handle that separately. But they had many good proposals there. But they, it isn't a question of President Obama or the Democrats. Republicans on the committee voted against it. They never got the 14 votes on the committee that it was required to go for. Bills now in Hmm? Bills yeah, but, but this was not the, the uh, two people. This was a commission. We didn't say two guys go in a room, if you come out, we're going to vote for it in Congress. We said we have a representative group of people at the table come up with a proposal, uh, but they wrote it themselves. So th that's a little known fact. It was not something that was uh, a consensus document. So you started your question with consensus. It was not a consensus document. It was exactly what it was called, Simpson-Bowles. 
But again, it had many good features, and uh, uh, a lot of what we're talking about now have, have, have some of the strains of what of what was uh, what was right. in there. I've got another hand over here. I've got lots of hands. I'll take the hand. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I'll yeah. try to be briefer. Yeah. Yeah. We, okay. Yeah. That's fine. That's good. Professor I'm with you. Yeah. Sir, please. I was wondering if um, you could comment. You're talking about the fight, you know, sacral uh, HIV and AIDS, and also about your uh, fiction as a uh, Catholic woman. I was wondering, is there ever a conflict uh, between your uh, Catholic faith and the tackling HIV AIDS? No. No. I thought you were taking it to another place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, let me just say this. Uh, there's everything, uh, ev everything uh, that I learned growing up, and you have to remember, I was in a, an Italian-American neighborhood, very Catholic, and, and it wasn't that uh, it was conservative in terms of personal, liberal in terms of politics, but conservative in terms of personal life, and whatever it is, however, I always have to thank my parents and God for what they instilled in me, but what they instilled in me is that, uh, and I get this question all the time, they say, as a Catholic, how can you support gay rights? I mean, not anymore, but mm. as I was going along, I thought, what a dumb question. Um, for them, not for you. <laughs> but but the fact is, is that... That is exactly, yeah. exactly what our faith is about. It's exactly about what the Bible teaches Extended us. into marriage, though, into the gay marriage. And the gay marriage? Okay. Uh, well, the gay marriage issue, um, I've not believed in discrimination of any kind. I don't believe in discrimination when it comes to marriage. Uh, I have had this view for a long time, and any time I was being like on a talk show, especially what might be perceived as a conservative interviewer, he'd start off by saying, so you support gay marriage, right? Which meant, I'm going to paint you with this brush, and nobody will ever respect anything else you say after that. And of course, I would proudly say that I support gay marriage, because I'm not uh, against discrimination. I had the privilege of being in the court for the oral arguments of Roma, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, and it was really quite thrilling. I feel quite certain that the court will strike it down because it is unconstitutional. But even this court will strike it down. It remains to be seen. But um, uh, no, I, I find all of these suits, whether it's treating people with HIV, AIDS, or whatever, to be completely consistent with the way I received the message of Catholicism uh, growing up. Yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman here, and uh, yeah. Yep, please. If you could be quick in the question, it would be quick. One of the things that I hear Speaker Vayner say a lot is um, uh, that, that President Obama needs to show uh, more leadership. And Stand up. Stand there we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, Good so, looking uh, Speaker Vayner says a lot that President Obama needs to show more leadership, which I think is funny because he can't control his own caucus. Um, <laughs> the thing that I think people talk about but don't talk nearly enough about is your ability to um, take courageous votes to lead your caucus. And one of the most courageous votes was uh, Captain Trade. Um, a lot of people don't realize how close America was to addressing climate change, and that was because of your leadership. I was wondering if you could talk about your ability to keep the caucus together, take those greatest votes, as well as reflect a little bit on that climate change vote. I appreciate your saying that. Well, um, with all due respect to my uh, uh, colleague, the distinguished speaker of the House, he knows better. But <laughs> in, in any case, uh, yes, the president is a great leader, and that's why he has to be stopped in their view. On the subject of climate change, this takes me back to your question. 
Uh, I, along with many of the evangelicals who support uh, uh, our initiatives on climate change, believe that this planet is God's creation and we have a moral responsibility to be good stewards of it. Even if you don't believe that, you must believe that we have a moral responsibility to future generations to pass on the planet in a, a, a serious way. That's why we were able to build a really interesting coalition, scientists and evangelicals, business and labor, concerned scientists, all across the way, actually, the creative community in every... Hmm? And veterans, uh, the veterans have been magnificent in this because a lot of uh, what we do revolves around our national security. So uh, we put forth really what was a compromise bill, consensus bill, a compromise bill. But if you want to see the power of big oil come down in a bit, big oil, well, big oil, okay, we know that they have endless money to spend. Big coal, I mean... Clean coal, the oxymoron of all time, it's, it's weighing in on this issue. Now, I'm respectful of our colleagues who represent those areas. We had massive amounts of money for uh, cap carbon capture and sequestration and the rest. In any event, uh, it was really a force that was uh, shock and awe, take no prisoners, scorched earth, you name it, to go after the people who voted for that. But you know what? some of us who are there have other options, most of us. And we were there to make a difference. It was about survival for some people, success for others, transformation. Transformation for how our economy would be and how it would lift people up. I mentioned President Bush because he signed our bill, which was the energy bill that we passed in 2007, which was groundbreaking. He wanted nuclear I wanted renewables, we came together. And we passed a bill that is spectacular in terms of protecting the environment, but it wasn't climate change. You know, it didn't take us the next step. A lot of the initiatives that the president is using on climate sprang from that Bush-signed bill in 2007. So uh, the... We have to recalibrate. You know, we have a new coalition to go forth to do more on climate, but I'm really very, very proud of our members who understood what the Secretary General of the United Nations, what the President of the World Bank, what the EU, what everybody else realized long before the policy of the United States reflected is we have important challenges to face. I met with the Energy Minister of China the other day to hear all the things that they're doing since I visited them a couple of years ago. It's really... It, Anybody who's thinking about this uh, knows that we have to make change, and it comes back to it's God's creation. It's it's a moral moral responsibility. I'm having real trouble here. Getting, there's a person in the middle here with a scarf on, with a turquoise scarf on. Let's see if I can identify you. Okay. You describe the scarf very well, but it doesn't look like you're pointing to her. Yeah. <laughs> I was it's, confused. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm suffering the worst jet lag any human being has ever suffered. The person in the middle. You had that scarf. Yeah, well, I got that right. Anyway, okay, please. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin Bergen. I'm from New Jersey. Hi, Caitlin. And you're a real inspiration. Hi, um, Given the failure of the Senate to pass any kind of reasonable gun control the other day, 
What are your thoughts on that, and do you have any hope that it can be done in the near future? Okay, that's a nice simple one. Thank you. This is, this is so, so sad. This is so, so sad. Um, we had a ceremony the other day dedicating a room to uh, Gabe Zimmerman, who took the bullet and put Gabby Giffords when she was hurt. Present that day was mother of Christina Green, the little girl, nine-year-old girl who was killed. Mm. Uh, other people who had gotten shot were there, including my colleague, Ron Barber, who worked for... Gabby, who now serves in Congress, so it was really so moving the vice president came, but was also stunning to us that is in another room for another purpose, we had some other family, some new town, and so I took Christina's mother in to meet the, uh, the um, parents and, and siblings of some of the new town victims, and to see the bonding, her telling them, you're going to get better. It's never going to be good, but you're going to get better. And to see the hopes that the, the hope that they had, because right then we had the vice president right there thinking we have 58 and we have four more possibilities. That was Wednesday. That was <coughs> Wednesday. When did they take the vote? Am I losing track? Of, yeah, that was Wednesday. So I, I took the red eye, so I lost track of Dave. What more would it take? I mean, you know, there are thousands of kids, but I mean, thousands of people who have been shot by guns since Newtown. Mm. That happened to be, in the aggregate, 20 little angels shot down. And that this bill, mind you, this bill was the least that we mm. could do. Mm. This wasn't about a ban on assault mm. weapons, a ban on high capacity uh, uh, magazines, uh, blah, 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 blah. it wasn't about, it, it wasn't, it, it was only about a compromise on uh, the, the, uh, the background check. Now, if you're not going to, if you're going to say, Ali Ali in free for every assault weapon ban, every high capacity magazine, that's even more reason to have background checks, right? And that they could not bring themselves to vote for it. You have to wonder, you know, who do we think we are, each of us? How important do we think our political survival is compared to the survival of a child who's getting shot by some high-capacity uh, magazine in the hands of the wrong person? It's a stunning thing that they would think their value was such that they could be afraid of the NRA and not care about the fear in the eyes of children confronted with such a situation. It's really stunning. The president, I think, spoke very... Um, he was angry. Perfectly. He was angry. He's very angry. I mean, mm. we just, we had, you know, I went with him to Tucson when Gabby was shot and we visited with the families and all the rest of that. And he spoke there in the same vein as he spoke the other day. He, he and Michelle were very moved by a nine-year-old, well, the whole thing, but a nine-year-old girl just getting caught in the crossfire like mm. that. And that just, and, and I, I talked to him on Wednesday about the budget, about another subject, and I said, uh, um, uh, I told Christina Green's mom, how single-focused you are on this. She already knew that, and it's a real comfort to her that, uh, that you are acting the way you are. Um, really, to those families, it means so much that the President of the United States cares so much. So where does that take us? I think we have to, in our caucus in the House, Democrats, we don't have the majority, as you well know, mm. but we are highly energized. Anybody ski here? You know, I always say to my kids, moguls are our friends. You get a, come to a bump, you plant that pole, you go down that hill even faster. 
This is a mobile. We're planning our poll, and we're getting more highly energized. We're always highly energized, but you can see the need for something so extraordinary. Abraham Lincoln, public sentiment is everything. They took a poll recently. Mother Teresa got 83%. Jesus got 90%. And background checks got 93%. (laughs) What is it that these people don't know? Daniel Day-Lewis got 96. So, so, what that tells us is we know what the public sentiment is. Mm. We know there's some kind of a screen in the minds of some of these people about their own importance. The public has to, the, their constituents have to let their views know. Nothing is more eloquent to a member of Congress or an elected official than the voice of his or her own constituents. Mm. And so we're not stopping. We cannot stop until we get this addressed. Mm. Mm. May ta- for, for some of those people, it is inconceivable that we will have more gun safety laws. Yeah. For us, it is inevitable, and we have to shorten the time between the inconceivable to some, the inevitable to others. But we are not going to rest until it gets I, I got, I, Nearly everybody in the, in the room now has their hand up. And <laughs> so I'm pointing, I think, in the right direction. You know, see, the man with the microphone in his hand. That's you, yeah. <laughs> Great. Maybe I'll have some questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> Could you speak up? So, louder, louder. Okay. Eric, I'm a student from China, and I'd like to ask a question as a Chinese congresswoman yourself, towards the Chinese government, uh, which was depicted as hawky by the Chinese official media, and your actions seem to justify your uh, description. Uh, you boycotted the Olympic Games, uh, you met Dalai Lama in 2008, and you uh, recently met Chen Longchen. Uh, on the 4th of June, which was the anniversary of the Tiananmen incident. Uh, on the other hand, uh, such actions do not seem to be taken well by the Chinese government, which con- uh, repeatedly condemned it uh, in its official media. So my question is, uh, do you force, uh, since when do you start uh, this uh, hockey, so-called hockey stance towards the Chinese government, and do you foresee a change in your st- uh, either your stance or the strategy? Thank you. So what is the word you use for this Hawkish. 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 You're a hawk. You're a hawk. My hawkish attitude. You're a hawk on China. Are you a hawk on China? My hawkish attitude, as you described, but uh, whatever you want to call it, began when they started rolling tanks over demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. I thought that was outside the circle of civilized human behavior. Um, I. uh, and I had, as I mentioned, this uh, disagreement where we go from there on it. I thought it was important to impress upon our own government that this was unacceptable. As you may recall, it wasn't a week or ten days after Tiananmen Square that uh, uh, National Security Advisor Scowcroft went to China, raised a toast, and said, we will not let people stand in the way of our relationship, meaning people who care about human rights in China, toasted the regime. It wasn't two weeks after the... The massacre. So um, we thought that this gave us an opportunity to focus on human rights violations in China and Tibet. I had been, uh, I had met with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, so I knew something about the, the situation in Tibet and his uh, initiative for autonomy, not independence, for autonomy. We thought, well, let's take a look at the tax code. I mean, the, the trade deficit. 
At that time, say about nine, that was 89, but say about 91 when we started, you know, recovering from the shock of these people, not recovering fully, but moving on to do something about what happened in Tiananmen Square. The trade deficit with the United States and China about 21 or two years ago was $5 billion a year. We thought, $5 billion, this is really going to give us leverage. We're going to get the students freed from prison who were arrested at the time of Tiananmen Square. We're going to have uh, market access for our products into China, and we're going to stop uh, their uh, uh, intellectual property violations, and we're going to stop the transfer of technology to Pakistan that was about weapons of mass destruction. There were three things, trade, human rights, and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And so we had a big coalition with big, strong votes in both houses, bipartisan, to do that. Uh, President uh, Bush vetoed that, and then President Clinton eventually vetoed it. But the point is, is at the time, those who were against our position said, oh, you, you have to believe in peaceful evolution, just let things go, democracy, uh, not, not have democracy, but mm. democratic reforms will emerge, and the trade situation will improve. Well, all these years later, you know the $5 billion a week? I mean, a year? $5 million, billion a year in trade deficit in 91, $5 billion a week today. So the strictly on the basis of trade argument didn't work, right? Our trade deficit you, increased 50 times, I, or 52 times. Can I jump in here? Look, let me go back to Aristotle and the middle class, <laughs> if I might. It's a great quote, but there's now 200 million members of the Chinese middle class. Is this not a good sign? Is this, good this not, not the way forward? And yeah. now, I think the input of what our friend was saying was being tough just against China won't get you anywhere necessarily. You've got well, to state your principles, but see the evolution economically and socially. Well, uh, is, doesn't that give you some hope as let well? Me, let, yeah. for, certainly, we, we uh, salute the growth of the middle class. It's probably going to be, mm. the, well, between China and India. It's a contest. Or there's sure. a bigger middle class. Uh, but when I, uh, a few years ago, the Chinese government came to me because I went to India and I visited the Dalai Lama there. And I know the torture that goes on. You know, we can have our state dinners, we can do this or that. But there are terrible human rights violations being committed by the Chinese in China and in Tibet. And if you look at China, you can see anything you want. You can see the growth of the middle class, you can see the formation of a middle, uh, a, a market economy. That's all positive. You can see some of the best work being done on climate change and the rest. But there's some other things that are going on there too. And one does not eliminate and say, oh, then we'll ignore the rest. So they came to me a few years ago and said, we're here to recalibrate our relationship. We want to invite you to China uh, as a head of state. This was, a, was it four years ago or three years ago? Uh, as a head of state, we'll give you a head of state, welcome to China, and we want to show you what we are doing and this or that. I said, as long as you understand that I, I must say something about human rights, I can't go to China without saying that. On the other hand, let's have another purpose to our visit, and we made it climate change. So we have built many bonds uh, with the Chinese on, uh, on the subject of climate change. Our interests are mutual. Uh, their size is huge, as you know. Their development is, is uh, rapid, and in fact, even though they've made great strides on climate, 
they're still a net emitter because of the development, and that's what has to be overcome. So we have to work together on that. Uh, sometimes when you fight long enough with an adversary, you get to know each other and try to find out where your uh, real differences lie and where you can find common ground. But they never hesitate when I went to see the Dalai Lama to say that I was the most disliked person in China, a compliment That's to me in terms of if they want to predicate it on my respect for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we do, China is a great country. We do have to work together on many issues. Mm -hmm. But out of respect, we have to be candid with each other, and we cannot, I will never, let any per prisoners of conscience or people arrested for expressing their views, not overturning the government, just expressing their views and being uh, like we have the blind dissident now uh, in New York or what's happening in Tibet. Uh, the, the most exquisite form of torture for a, 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 a political prisoner is for the prisoners to tell the, the, the prison guards to tell the prisoners nobody cares, they're not even talking about it anymore. Uh, they've left you. Nobody even remembers why you are in jail. So this is a, a, a big thing for us, the issue of human rights. It's a value that is very important in the United States. I know it is uh, uh, in, in the EU, and uh, I hope that there will be growing opportunity for people to express themselves in we China. Are. But we have more going on between us. As I said, the, the uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, uh, con uh, energy minister just came uh, to my office the other day. We had a very, very positive And there's a lot, of, a lot of economic intercourse between And, yeah, and we got the issue of North, yeah. North Korea oh. that we're working with. Yeah, we, we, have our, we have our own issues with North Korea at the moment. You may, you may, have, you may have noticed. Uh, but however, let's not mention either Libya or North Korea. Um, there's a, this will have to be, I'm afraid, because we are reaching... I, I know everybody else wants to ask a question. Uh, we've come to about 8 o'clock, so I'm afraid we do have to bring it to a conclusion. Uh, okay, thank you. You've stood up. You're looking really good. Let's get the question. Great. Uh, Pelosi, uh, my name is Christian Abwig. I'm a fellow Californian. And, uh, my Sit down. We don't uh, need to... <laughs> <laughs> my, my uncle had the privilege of serving with you for Congress for over a decade, Congressman Filner. But oh, yeah. my question uh, to you is, uh, since the House Republicans introduced their uh, bill for the budget last month, and so did the Senate Democrats. Will the House Democrats introduce any bill at all uh, in terms of uh, creating a budget? Because obviously, uh, constitutionally, it has to originate from the House. Yeah, we have introduced our bill. Now, the Republicans won't allow it to be on the floor, but that doesn't mean we haven't introduced it in committee and we proposed it in the other parliamentary ways. But they, uh, it's, I guess, a bill, no, we don't have the votes for it, but we have introduced it. And it's almost a mirror image of the Senate bill. We work closely with them on the bill. But I'm glad you asked about uh, the, how, how uh, you know, we talked earlier about leadership and this or that. And the budget for us, I'm going to take a little minute on this answer. I'm with you. Michael. Michael. <laughs> Professor like Cox. Like okay. Both, both work. Here's the thing. The budget is a statement of your values as a country. What is important to you should be where you allocate your resources. And we come back to the middle class. President Obama's budget is a beautiful budget. It's a budget about, and it's very much like our House and Senate budgets as well, although he does us one better, and I'll tell you how. It is a budget that says we are going to reduce the deficit, 
lower taxes on the middle class, create jobs, and do so in a way that uh, is in, builds the infrastructure of America, invest in the new green technologies, and the rest of that. It also is a budget that, unlike ours, and the president is ahead of us on this, although we uh, have been pr proposing it, he has it in his budget, uh, universal pre-K. This is really important, universal pre-K, that these little children get an opportunity to learn, and that their parents get a chance to earn children learning, parents earning. The president's budget uh, cuts defense by $150 billion. It takes us in a course, a course of a deficit reduction of debt to GDP, lowering that. It is really a beautiful budget, a real statement of values that gets the job done for job creation, deficit reduction, and respect for the middle class, protecting the middle class. As opposed to that, the Republican budget is uh, just the opposite. It is predicated on false premise that, uh, that the reason we don't have growth is because we have a big debt. Well, that has been disproven, but you don't even have to be an economist to see that when you have uh, investments in growth, you create jobs and you bring revenue to the Treasury. Nothing Nothing, flat out statement, nothing brings more money to the Treasury than the education of the American people. Early childhood, K through 12, higher ed, postgrad, lifetime learning. And the President's budget makes a very strong commitment to all of that. To all of that. So when you have a budget, a Republican budget, that cuts these things or sequestration, that, that doubles, or a budget that doubles the interest rate for students on their loans and the rest of that, you are increasing the deficit, no matter what they tell you. So we have, we have said, okay, the House passed its budget. We don't believe in it. It doesn't share our values. But they passed a budget. They have been saying, uh, we want what is called regular order. This is more on the subject than you want to know, but it's what you're going to hear. Regular order. That means that you go through the process. Okay, we passed ours. They said the Senate, if only the Senate would pass a budget, we would have regular order. Well, the Senate passed a budget. So now it's time for us to go to conference to reconcile, that's called reconcile the differences. The Republicans have said, who have been beating the drum for regular order, regular order, regular order, and we echo that call have now said, well, I don't know about going to conference. Because what conference means is we're sitting at a table in broad light, where day or artificial light, where people can see what the budget decisions are. And they can decide if they represent their values on one side or the other. Uh, the uh, idea that because we have a deficit, we've got to cut our investments in education and the rest is such a false idea and, and you can see the impact of it throughout. Uh, so that, that's what the fight is now. We are calling upon the speaker to say let us appoint conferees. Let us go to the table to have the debate. Let us do it in the opening. Open daylight. Public sentiment is everything. Let the public 
decide. They may decide on this other anti-government, ideological, suppress the middle class approach. Or they may not. (laughs) Or they may not. But the fact is, they will know better what the difference is. And let me say, when we're talking about growth, how important the relationship of the U.S. is to the U.K. and to all of Europe. Europe's success is our success and vice versa. We're very excited about TTIP, the the initiative for trade, uh, improving trade in financial services and other areas that is being debated now uh, and hope that that will go forward. Uh, We see the EU as an important uh, entity in in all of this economic recovery. We want to see a strong EU. We'd like to see a strong UK in the EU. That's up to you to decide. Excellent. But... But understand this, in all that we do, in all the, shall we say, offhand remarks we make about one thing and another and people's attitudes, mm-hmm. we all have to see the value of what everybody brings to the table and respect all these organizations for what resource they may be for consensus building, rather than judge them for something we don't like about what they do. Mm-hmm. And whether that's the Republican Party or the EU or whatever it happens to be, or the Democratic Party, whatever it happens to be, uh, we have responsibilities to the future. We have responsibilities to that middle class. We have responsibilities to the next, this generation, and the next, and the next, to find the consensus, respecting differing views, to, uh, to get the job done. And some of the features of what's happening now with these budget decisions and these attitudes uh, of of, uh, the creative few or the dominant few, creative for the people, dominant for power and money, is uh, manifested in the growing disparity of income in America. I can just speak to that. If you go back to the 70s or just the beginning of the 80s, the difference between a CEO, the average CEO and the average worker was about 40 times different. Now, according to the studies out there, it is over 350 times CEO to worker. This is not a constructive direction. This big jaw is not in furtherance of growing middle class. And some of these people, God bless them for their success and their wealth. We don't begrudge them that. We just want the uh, workers uh, to have a shot. In the 70s, it went like this. It went like this. CEO, worker pay, productivity. All going like this. At one point, the CEO pay went like this. Productivity went like that. And average workers went like that. Not even keeping up with productivity, much less the growth. Uh, uh, A a person, no less a person than the head of Standard Oil in New Jersey, his name was Abrams, he said, he talked about stakeholder capitalism. He talked about in a corporation to make decisions in a balanced way that balance the various uh, uh, entities, shareholders, employees, the community at large, customers, and that's how decisions were made. We have, in that 20-year period, come from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism and forgetting the consumer, the customer, 
as he said, the public mm. at large. And that has caused a change in attitude. Tom Peters, writing about excellence, said, you look to the, the countries, companies that are best managed, they are those that respect their workers, even keeping them employed in time of recession. A lot of this uh, political philosophy that says what it says about um, deficits and what it says about laissez, 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 faire, <laughs> are the same who do not want to increase the minimum wage, who uh, disparage people on food stamps and, and other uh, income support from the government, where that, all that import, all of that is subsidizing a very low wage that enables those profits to increase and that CEO pay to go up. So it's a big difference on these subjects. And we think we'd like to return to a stakeholder uh, capitalism uh, model, and we think that's better uh, to increase the size of the middle class and, the, and, and bring people who aspire into it, into it. Uh, and I know that you all have many ideas on this subject, which perhaps I can invite you to write to me about or email me about. Hey, it's at least the, the, these are our guys. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't get them, you know. But in, but in, in, in any event, uh, I, I thank you for your interest in, you. in the way and where you are attending school that you have attended this evening. I'm honored to see all of you. I thank you so much, Mr. Director, for the hospitality to be here with LSE. Um, it is a, it, it's a remarkable time in history. And if we could just get ourselves back on track where we, whether it's for religious reasons, respect the dignity and worth of every person, whether it's a respect for the middle class where we know we have to lift everybody up. Our attitude in the Democratic Party is about the American dream. We need to reignite it. We need to build ladders of opportunities so people who work hard, play by the rules, take responsibility, have a chance. And we would hope that that would be a nonpartisan attitude as well. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Nancy. I've just got one request for you. When you next meet President Barack Obama, please tell him he's got to come here. Okay. Come here very quick. And we're going to have him here too. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Before you all go, it's oh, yeah. a great LSE tradition. We're very generous. We, we hand out baseball caps. So Nancy, you've got to have it with me. <laughs>